0: Asking questions and clarifying what the Bible is saying is an integral part of Bible translation ministry as well. Even in the process of translating it, people are asking questions about how is this going to be understood? How will these words come across? It just really sharpens us to be always looking at Scripture from the perspective of asking questions. Welcome to the Essentially Translatable Podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. I'm Richardowski
1: and I'm Emily Wilson. So, it's back to school season and we've got people coming from all different parts of the world onto the St. Paul Lutheran High School campus and with all of the people from different parts of the world come a lot of different questions and this episode is another one of our ask a pastor uh, as one of our most popular episodes from this past academic year a lot of the students were able to express themselves and asking questions hard Bible questions. Mm-hmm. And you and Pastor Lang did an excellent job that first go, being able to just tackle some of the things that were hard and heavy on their minds. So want to share a little bit about what they've got lined up this week?
0: Yeah. I think it's always a great challenge for pastors and for folks who are really kind of deep and established in the faith, to hear questions from folks who are asking questions to remind ourselves that the Christian faith invites questions, and we sort of get used to things and, and just don't really necessarily think about everything that somebody may be uh, asking. So these questions from students give us some insights into how is culture, how are young people looking at matters of faith, and what kinds of questions they're asking, and it helps us to not be so inward focused and, and to think about things from different perspectives.
1: You know, I was actually just just thinking about this the other day as i was cooking i had a question personally Mm. did jesus have a flavor he disliked you know as i was cooking i'm like did he ever like eat something and say "Mm, you know i really don't like olives
0: yeah that's a good question Uh, uh. (laughs) if he did it was somehow without sin so right yeah somehow yeah that's got to be the case. The thing I was thinking is when we lived in Botswana, the thing I learned about folks there is when you have a much more limited choice of foods, mm-hmm. people generally like what there is available right. because that is it. So it's actually I don't know for sure, but it could be that you know being choosy about foods is is one of the things you can do when you have access to more foods or mm-hmm. more wealth to make food. So mm-hmm. then in that case, if Jesus was you know from a more normal and less affluent background than than we are, then he very well may have liked everything he had because there just wasn't a lot of things to choose from. So anyways, so Pastor Tom Lang was the guest with us again this time. He teaches Christian apologetics and uh, other religion classes here at St. Paul Lutheran High School and is great to sit and talk with. So with no further ado, listen into my conversation with Pastor Lang on Ask a Pastor Part 2. We are back in the studio for a second round of Ask the Pastor with Pastor Tom Lang from St. Paul Lutheran High School. Glad to have you back. Thank you. Great to be doing this again. We're uh, excited for the new school year starting. And yeah, welcome back, everybody. And let's talk a little bit about the Bible. If I was a first-time reader of the Bible, what is the best or right way to read the Bible? What's the best way to grow in faith, reading the Bible for the first time?
2: Uh, that's a great question. You know, I've heard people say, uh, start with a certain book of the Bible. Start with John, start with Romans. And uh, I think there are definitely some books of the Bible that are are easier for someone to who is new to the Bible to digest than other books. You know, Leviticus is usually the one that gets mentioned that maybe you shouldn't start with. right? But uh, to me, it's more important rather than where you start, is, is just how you go about it. Uh, if you're a believer in God and you're encountering the Bible for the first time, then you know, talk to God. Say, God, show me what you want me to know in your word. If you're not a believer in God or maybe you're not sure, you can still say, you know, hey, God, I've got some friends who think this is your word and, and that you speak through it. So if that's true, it'd probably be good for me to know that. So help me to see you and, and help me be open to that. And uh, so I just think that openness to possibly encountering God himself through his word is, is um, really important. And I also think it's important to do it with somebody else. Yeah. Commit to reading it together, talking about it together. The Christian faith is meant to be lived in relationship with other people. So I start, study studying the Bible really should be too. Uh, it can be really helpful to find someone knowledgeable about the Bible, a lifelong Christian who's studied it a lot, maybe, or a pastor or a other church worker. They can help you guide, help guide you through it when you run across parts of the Bible that are hard to understand. And there, yeah, lots there are a few of those, aren't yeah, there? Yes, yeah,
0: for sure. <laughs> That's how guys like you and I get to keep working. Uh, <laughs> Good job, security. Yeah, no, I mean that there's a. Of course, God's word is you know eternal, and God Himself doesn't change. But of course, the situations God's speaking into go across centuries and cultures and Mm. times and Mm -hmm. places that that um, and just by the nature of what communication is, all of that detail isn't included in the text that you're reading because there's an assumption of what people already know when they were first reading it that you may need to fill in as a reader. So. Yeah, there's a lot of hard parts for sure. Now let's say somebody's listening and they heard all your advice, but they said, no, but I'm still, I'm in my dorm room and I've got my Bible and I'm going to want to start out by myself. Like where <laughs> would you say to maybe start or not start at?
2: Uh, well, I think the Gospel of John is, is a good place. You know, the Gospel of John has been said that it's, it's uh, both simple and deep at the same time. Yeah, the language is pretty simple, but the concepts are pretty deep. And, and uh, I've had actually some friends who have started with the Gospel of John with no knowledge of the Bible at all. Oh. And uh, in fact, one, one friend who got to the end, and, and uh, she was crying when she read about how these people killed this man who was such a wonderful man. And so she was really intrigued with the, the story of Jesus as revealed in, in that gospel. Any of the gospels, really, you, you can't go wrong with any of them, I don't think.
0: Yeah, that's is what there. I was thinking, too, is that the, any of the gospels, in, at least from our cultural background, and it, many folks listening may not be Christian, but still think they've heard something about it. And, and what I find is that supposed familiarity breeds some kind of distance, that if you actually get in there and just read who this guy you know, claims to be in the things he says and the things he does, mm. it's surprising. It's even to me surprising every time, like, wow. Um, and I think that's, that's what you encounter is Jesus in these Gospels and not somebody else's interpretation or the, the way that um, you may have heard or think you understand Jesus, but let the word testify for itself.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Were Adam and Eve vegetarians before the fall?
0: That seems like an apologetics question, so I'll let you go with that
2: (laughs) Okay, sure. Um, I had the opportunity to do a dinosaur presentation at a friend's church over the summer, and uh, so I just had a chance to review that not too long ago. But in in Acts 29 and 30, the Bible is actually very clear. A lot of people don't know this. A lot of long-time Christians don't know this. But uh, it says... Quite clearly that every living creature was vegetarian before the fall. Um, God said, behold, I have given you every green plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. That's to Adam and Eve that he's talking to. And then he goes on to talk about all the creatures and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food, which... I guess when you stop and think about it, it's kind of self-evident that the little gazelle who's getting eaten by the lion in in the Garden of Eden is probably not going to think about that as much of a paradise. So right. you would think that predatory behavior probably could not happen before the fall into sin, because that would be pretty disturbing for the gazelle or for Adam and Eve to witness also. Interestingly, it's not until after the flood that God gave explicit permission for people to eat meat. So... Right over a thousand years after the fall into sin. Although there were probably some people, maybe uh, maybe even lots of people who ate meat before then, Cain had a descendant named Jabel. this is in Genesis 4.20, and the quote about him is, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. Now, it could be that Jabel raised livestock only for the milk and for other things that livestock could provide, mm-hmm. clothing maybe. But I think it's probably more likely that Jabel and maybe people he did business with probably ate the livestock before the flood. But it wasn't until after the flood that God gave explicit permission to be able to, to eat meat.
1: Why did God place the tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden to tempt Adam and Eve?
2: Do you have an answer for that one? Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I, I uh, just gave some time to think about that for a little while. Yeah, I don't think we can point to a passage and say uh, in the Bible and say, "This is why." Yeah. But I, I think there are some principles about God that we can point to and, and make our best guess. Uh, in order to have a relationship with any, any kind of situation, any person including God, there has to be a possibility of, of not relationship. You know, God couldn't claim Adam and Eve really love me if there's no possibility that they couldn't love him if they were just these God-honoring robots. Yeah. So I think there's a free will aspect to what's going on here. So love and relationship involves a choice, and the tree of knowledge and of good and evil was that choice. I also feel like if you look at passages like what happened with Job or um, there's another lesser-known Time when Satan came and accused Joshua. I think it's in the book of Zechariah mm-hmm. of uh, making made an accusation against Joshua, and and God rebuked him. There's another time when Satan came and asked to basically put Peter through the ringer yeah. in, in the Gospel of Luke. So there's this spiritual battle going on in the background that we don't see between God and Satan. And I don't know you you can disagree with me if you want, but I feel like there's this almost this set of rules going on that we only get a, a few glimpses of, but we don't really know a whole lot about. Right. So my personal feeling is maybe the tree of knowledge and good and evil was almost a, a measure agreed upon by God and Satan. Again, this is just my, my guess, uh, my supposal, as, uh, as C.S. Lewis put it to satisfy some rules of, of spiritual battle that they were engaged in that we don't really know about. So, you know, Satan's name means accuser and, and maybe it went something like this. Satan brings this accusation to God and says, oh, the only reason they love you is because, look at this beautiful garden you've put them in and you've given them no other choice but to love you. And, and then Satan judges whether Satan, uh, or God judges whether Satan's accusation is, has merit. And so God says very well, um, what do you propose we do about that? And so maybe this possibility of disobeying God the, with the tree of knowledge and good and evil is is introduced in that situation. Again, that's just my, my personal guess about what could have happened in, in this spiritual realm that we, that we only get a few little glimpses of here and there in the Bible.
0: Yeah, now, as you said, of course, there's no way to prove that. We can see in the opening of the book of Job something that's exactly like what you're describing though happening between God and Satan with regard right. to Job. Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah.
2: And when uh when Jesus told or warned Peter that, that Satan was going to to put him through a trial, the wording that Jesus used is Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. So Satan had to right. ask permission first. Yep. Yep. The only other thing
0: I thought is uh, the wording of the question is, uh, why did he do that to tempt Adam and Eve? And, and um, again, uh, in a way, the question sort of asking, like, couldn't God have just avoided this whole problem, right? right. And yeah. that gets back to what we said in, uh, earlier, that our ways and God's ways are not the same, and our thoughts and God's thoughts aren't the same. So that seems like a good idea to us, but there's some reason why that's not a good right. idea. Right. And then uh, in the book of James, it's clear that no man should say when he is tempted that God is tempting me. Mm. And, uh, it, but then it goes on to say, each one is tempted by his own desire that carries him along. And then that desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. So something, I don't know, because you can't really say if, if this is perfect and there was perfection, but there was something in the man and the woman that somehow desired or were tempted to desire this, but that's not from God. So. Mm. I yeah. don't know, but yeah. ultimately, it's in the hidden area that God hasn't chosen to reveal to us, right. but rather just to say, this is what happened. Mm-hmm. And uh, the more important part is his response, right. which is uh, right. promising the the woman and the man, Adam and Eve, that the descendant would come and uh, right this wrong. And uh, while, while Satan would strike the heel, uh, they would crush his head. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, Jesus did for us.
2: And I, I love that about God in this situation that, uh, you know, let's say it, it unfolded like I talked about. It may have, may not. But what ended up happening in, in the long run is God shows himself to be far superior to Satan. Yeah. Because when is Satan ever willing to lift a finger for any human being? And so God takes care of this problem that human sin created. And he brought a lot more glory to himself in humanity, seeing this side of God and his willingness to sacrifice for us that we would not have seen otherwise if, yeah. if the fall into sin would have never taken place. That's true. And so it really, I think it really elevated God as if, if Satan wanted to bring God down, make him look bad, what it did was, I think, just the opposite.
0: Why was it necessary for the animals to also be killed in the flood? The time before the flood talks about this real disruptive time where nothing is orderly anymore. It seems even the sons of God and the daughters of man with all those kinds of interpretations are having some kinds of relationships that are... So there's just all this disarray, and then it says that the the thought of mankind was always evil all the time in Genesis 6. And so he decided basically to undo his creation. Mm-hmm. Now, that's how I think it reads. Now, why is it necessary for the animals to also be killed in the flood? That question itself, I don't know. Of course, God provided a way for the species of animals to be maintained in the right. flood. Now, of course, you just did a flood presentation, or, right? Is that what you said? Uh, uh, dinosaurs. A we dinosaur, delve okay. into the flood a little bit.
2: Okay. Well, anyways, maybe you have something... Uh, some thoughts on that too. Yeah, I think the way I read the question is it made it sound like the judgment was on the animals, but it wasn't. It was on sure. it was on the human beings. And you find in the Bible, as human beings go, so goes creation. Right. God put them in charge of his creation, and its fate, creation's fate, is really tied to what humans do. So when humans sinned, creation was cursed. And when human rebellion against God got so bad— Many years after the fall of sin, there was only one man in his family left who believed in him. I think we talked about that maybe in the other podcast. And that was the case before the flood. So judgment came on all creation. So the animals were not guilty. They weren't judged because of anything that they had done. But the judgment against humans affected them. And uh, I think that's an important thing to remember. It's It's sobering, really, to realize that my sin— affects more than me. Yeah. As a human being, it can affect creation. As a father, it can affect my children. As a member of the community, it can affect other people around me. As a husband, it can affect my wife. So, you know, that that's just important to remember that I that I impact other people around me not just myself when, you know, when I stray away from what God would have me do right
0: and the the one of the promises of what god has done in christ is that uh, ultimately creation itself as it says in romans 8 creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay mm-hmm. and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of god for we know verse 22 that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth up until this present time so as you said the creation is impacted by our sin and uh, also ultimately will be impacted by our redemption through jesus as well mm-hmm.
1: What does the Bible mean when it says God's heart?
0: There's a lot of ways that, that question could be understood. One thing, of course, is uh, God is spirit and not a man, right? So God doesn't have physical being except for Jesus, of course. <laughs> but <laughs> but I don't think that's what we're talking about here. So, but as a way to try to understand God, there are certainly plenty of attributes given to him to. That, that would be reserved for humanity and, and creatures, but to try right. to describe and relate to God because God is really unknowable, again, apart from Christ. And so it's sort of like reaching in the dark to understand who God is. And then again, when we talk about the heart, even if we were talking about physicality, like you and I both have hearts, but that's not what we're really talking about here either, the, right. the organ that pumps blood through the body. Mm-hmm. What we're trying to talk about is a, a center or a seat of emotions, which mm-hmm. in English... We use this the heart, and, you know, around the world, people do other things with that. There's the uh, the liver is a place, like in Guatemala, one of the languages Lutheran Bible translators worked in before. Everything that's heart is liver for the way they see the world now. Is that the, right? The way they talk about uh-huh. it, even in the New Testament. You know, when Jesus has compassion, uh, it's, it talks more specifically in the Greek about his intestines or the bowels were ripped, right. you know, yeah. which, yeah. okay, that sounds bad in English, but that's what <laughs> it, it says in uh, in Greek. So mm-hmm. so this center of emotion, so I think, that, you know, the Bible is trying to get at God also seems to in some way— experience emotion. And even when I say that, I would caveat that with God's not just a bigger version of people so that the way we experience emotions is precisely what God does, just bigger. I mean, that's kind of a, a trap that human thinking brings us into is that sort of thinking whatever I think or feel must be right or good or whatever. God thinks the same thing, just much bigger. But mm, God yeah. says, you know, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts and not in Isaiah. And so but God seems to have emotion. He has wrath and anger in the text of scripture mm-hmm. and uh but in a way that is somehow still completely righteous and good unlike human beings and mm-hmm. also then he feels deep love and compassion with no self-serving
2: background or motive like we do in our sinful human state. You know the passage I thought of um is where God talks about his own heart um and there are probably many times but the one that popped in my head was when he referred to David as a man after my own heart. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the word is there in Hebrew. But, you know, so God talked about that in that way. But as you mentioned, uh, God is, I think the fancy word is anthropomorphized, right? Right. When we give him human characteristics. So we talk about his face, his arms, you know, other aspects of of God to help us understand him. And uh, as you said, the heart is simply talking about the you know, our emotions and not necessarily the, the physical one that's that's pumping blood through our bodies.
0: Is it important that in the Nicene Creed, they use the word homoousius?
2: Oh, I think it was very definitely important to the people at the Council of Nicaea in 325. That word was really the the biggest issue of all. Homoousius, which means same substance, is, you know, it's really what we still say today in the Nicene Creed when we say Jesus is of one substance with the Father. So what's really revealing is that the heretic Arius, which was, you know, he was the main reason the Council of Nicaea was convened, he did not like that word. So that maybe indicates how important that word was. He didn't like that Jesus and the Father were the same substance because Arius taught that Jesus was a creation of God. You might think of him as a, a demigod type creature, like maybe Hercules compared to Zeus. Mm-hmm. So, really powerful, but not the same, not on the same level as God. So, uh, Arius did not like homoousios. He was interested in using a different Latin word, which was homoiousios, which meant similar substance. So, uh, yes, it was very, very important because the early church wanted to make it really clear. That Jesus was true God, not that He was just kind of true God.
0: Right. So then, uh, let me ask a little bit more than the students ask: Is that what bearing does that have today, or what importance today with that that term being of love, substance of the Father? Why does it matter that Jesus is true God and true man, and not just you know pretty much almost God?
2: Right. <laughs> uh, well, there are still different groups that have that same kind of teaching today. The Jehovah's Witness is basically recycled ancient Arianism and, and repackaged it into their their religion, so they believe that Jesus is actually equal to Michael the Archangel. Okay. And because of that belief, since he's not true God, our, our sins are not committed against him, and so he doesn't have authority to forgive sins. So because of that, Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross only covers original sin, but not, not all sins. Right. And that's a a real critical point to make, I think, is that
0: ultimately, you know, the point of or a major point of right doctrine is just the security that this Jesus has done what it takes for you to be reconciled with God, because any little crack in that or doubt uh, can arise that uh, takes away that security. So, Yeah.
2: Is there such a thing as being too religious?
0: Yeah, I'll take that one. It's an interesting question. There are plenty of examples of, of groups of people over the, the millennia who take parts of the Bible and and really organize their life around it, but in a way that is out of balance or unhealthy. And that's what kind of the definition of a cult is, oh, yeah. where there's a, a leader who wields power, uh, over folks unfairly and uh, really to his own advantage, which is which is c- contrary to what Christ said. For as an example to his disciples, that the greatest of of them would be the least and would serve among them. So that's kind of a sign. So, um,
2: any thoughts from you on? Yeah, I um, you know, I I think yes, a person could get too religious if your religion is about what you are doing. Yeah, you know? that's true. But if you, I don't, I don't think you can love Christ too much. Sure. You know, <laughs> so you can, you can, it can, act, you can go through the motions of your religion and and be very, uh, very rigid about that. I think, and um, and like you said, there have been lots of examples of of cult leaders who have used their their status for for power and and money and have abused it in a lot of different ways. But uh, but if you love Christ, that's not going to happen. So I think um, that's true. Yeah. So that's that's kind of how I look at it.
1: How far do you think the gospel had spread before the Roman Catholic Church
2: sent out missionaries to all parts of the world?
0: All right. So, again, there's a lot of parts to that question that, you know, are true or they they assume some things. But it's, of course, it's not— it's unknown exactly how far the gospel had spread during the the time of the early church. Paul already in his letters, like in one of the, the letters to the um, Thessalonians, uh says this is the gospel that has gone out to all of the world. So, you know, what does that mean? Is that just a hyperbole for all of the, the Roman world or the known world, or had it really Gone in, there's, of course, tradition that, say, the 12 apostles and their followers uh, went to different places, such as Thomas to India is a common one. I think I'm going to have this right, that Matthew to Egypt and then folks from Egypt to Ethiopia, there's evidence of a very early Christian church there. There's mm-hmm. evidence of early Christian church as far away as what is now China, but you know with gaps in there so right. that the the church has not spread continuously over the face of the earth without expansion and, and contraction. So, yeah, it's kind of hard to know. And then the Roman Catholic Church started sending out missionaries. Uh, you know, there's a whole bunch more <laughs> to the story there by the time the church is clearly identified as Roman Catholic. And then there's uh, there's subsets of the church that are more missionary-focused, not unlike today's church, where there are some folks that are, are going and sending and um uh, no,
2: there's not. I don't know. Do you have something to something more to add to that? You know, that, that's outside my area of expertise, but uh, everything you, you said uh, are, are things that I, I've heard before and, and agree with, although I'm not sure when St. Francis of Assisi came along. I think he was in the 1100s, if I remember right. But uh, I remember the Franciscans, when I used to teach church history, many of them gave their lives trying to share the faith in the Muslim world. Yeah and uh you know when we think of of Islam we kind of think of it maybe a little bit ignorantly as a modern day uh issue and yet 7 800 years ago there were people who were bringing the the faith and and bringing the word of god very courageously to to the muslim world and uh you know saint francis of assisi and and the other franciscan's are were some of my faith heroes that i learned about as i was teaching church history because I was I was really impressed with their their dedication that they had. Yeah, and the
0: doctoral program I made for missiology I mean, I studied this big thick book about the it's called the Barbarian Conversion, but how the how the Europeans became Christian and it is fascinating, but it's also like a, literally a thousand-year process. <laughs> um, as uh, the church kind of expands and contracts and and goes through long periods of what we call syncretism, where there's Christianity, but still traditional religion going on there as right. well. And there's even some right. evidence of that at the time of Luther. Honestly, that's what he's still kind of going against too. But yeah, so...
2: Hadn't some of the barbarians been exposed to Arianism too? So yes. They, so yep. they were familiar with the scriptures, but then they had to they had to get the right story. Right, yeah. So there are <laughs> periods... What, who Christ was. There are
0: periods of evangelism where some folks call it Christianization, which means that these folks had some idea of of christianity but but uh you know not an orthodox version of it that mm-hmm. or, or with correct teaching, so yeah hmm.
2: How do you feel about Christian monks who live in monasteries? Well, I just talked about the Franciscans, so um they uh i I was always impressed when i when I learned about them. But uh, definitely some mixed feelings about monasteries. I, I think it really depends on on the motivation yeah. behind it. Mm-hmm. So, what's the goal of living in a monastery? For some people, you know they they wanted to live in isolation so they could devote themselves to meditating on God. Which is when you you hear that, it's not a bad thing. But oftentimes the motivation was to escape sin, and that wasn't going to work, right? <laughs> because Jesus said it's it's not what goes into a person that makes him or her unclean, it's it's what comes out of the heart. And the heart is always going to be with you no matter where you go. That's true. No matter if you try to get yourself out of the world or not. Was the motivation being separate from the world? Well, That's not really the same heart as God. Jesus died to save the world, and he told us to go into the world to share his word. So those were maybe some bad motivations of, of monasteries. But there were some monasteries, of course, that were located within communities, and the monks or as it were, maybe nuns, would be very much involved in their communities, helping the poor, teaching God's word, basically spreading the word. So in cases like that, where you've got this brotherhood of monks or sisterhood who are keeping each other accountable to live for Christ and and then you're going out into the community to do good works, which Ephesians 2.10 says God created us to do, that to me would be the best kind of scenario for a monastery.
0: Historically, the monastery was a mission model in in again that European expansion of Christianity. And at a certain point, uh, after the fall of the Roman Empire, like the Christianity was pushed almost out of Europe completely, and just in Ireland itself, where there are few monasteries left, and that's kind of what preserved Western Christianity and it spread back from there across Europe. But uh, by the time of Luther, it's it's important to note that you now quite a bit of what He writes and I think context that's important even for anybody who studies how Luther was trying to reform the church and reform pastoral care. He is talking about monasteries and and in that case in the the negative sense where people have used them as a motivation to try to be super Christians or earn their salvation by doing certain things that have been described as holy works. And it's kinda interesting because in twenty first century USA when you know, a Lutheran pastor will say we have to be careful against works righteousness, and then they might cite something Luther wrote about, you know, good works. Luther's not talking about good works, meaning doing good things and saying, you know, we shouldn't do that. He's talking about these good works that people say prescribe within the the monastery context and say, this is the only way to be a true Christian is to do these things. And he says, no, you know, true Christianity is to love your neighbor. And, you know, the basic stuff of the 10 commandments to be engaged in God's word and, to to uh, serve your neighbor, um, those are good works. So if you're anybody who has ever uh, decides to pick up Luther and read him, try try to keep that in mind that he's really talking about this situation of of monasteries where people have prescribed them as a holier way to
2: live, right? And then a lot more makes sense in context. Sure, yeah. One of the things that I, I enjoyed about teaching church history, I mean. The, there was always the chance of corruption for monasteries because uh, people would look at them as kind of super-Christians, and so then they would donate a lot of money to them, and then right. you know there goes that vow of poverty out the window. Right. Um, but uh, in spite of some of the issues that went on with, with monasticism, I, I think it's cool to look back and see how God used monasteries, even the ones that, that kind of missed the point of, you know, you talked about how it was kind of a mission model, But many of them didn't, you know, kind of miss that point. But yet uh, monasteries helped preserve a lot of learning. They helped preserve a lot of books. They made copies of Bible manuscripts. So uh, God used them for his purpose in spite of the fact that many were uh, a little misguided, which is... You know, should be comforting for all of us. (laughs) Absolutely,
0: yeah. (laughs) Because we never get it quite right. Right. God does not need a perfect situation, apparently, to make things work. He has, for whatever reason, in his wisdom, decided to work through fallen human beings. And while we struggle and often fail to get it right, he still works through these uh, imperfect vessels.
1: What do you think about gay people, and how can love be
0: wrong? Yeah, I think this is a a, another issue that I would be surprised if it wasn't raised. It's an important uh, one in the civic discussion right now. So, yeah, there's a couple of parts there. So I'll let you kind of take it how you want. What do you think about gay people? How can love be wrong?
2: Well, I think the first thing that we want to emphasize is that Christ loves all people. Yes, and uh, if I am following Christ. Then, I love all people as well, and that includes people who have different beliefs and different lifestyles than I do yeah. so that that's very, very important that uh you know that we recognize that no matter what the differences may be we as as believers in christ uh, we don't have the option not to love, we must make that that choice to love and uh and many times it does have to be a choice you know there are there are times when you know I, I meet somebody and, and the, the way that they live their lives and i 'm not just talking about the gay community I 'm talking about any kind of thing yeah. uh, really bothers me and and I have to choose to love that person uh, because Christ loved me, even though i 'm sure the way I live my life bothers him as well so but uh, with that in mind, we also need to have we need to balance that with the truth of what God's word says, and I go back to creation. God created people male and female, and said, "Be fruitful and multiply." So His plan for the world is male, female relationships. Now, I always think of it like you know maybe some great thing that somebody sent to me, I have no idea what it is, but it's got instructions inside. Uh, I need to use those instructions in order to get the most out of, out of what this thing may be. And God is the creator of the universe. Uh, he knows how his world works best, and he knows how mankind works best. And his plan for humankind is male-female relationships. And his word tells us that he loves us. Yeah. So then I have to trust that people will be living the best life God has to offer them if they do that, if they do it the way that God says. So I don't doubt that homosexual couples sincerely love each other, but God who knows everything doesn't have in mind for two men or two women to have a sexual relationship. Right. Heterosexuality is his best plan for humanity. And uh, I, I think you just have to trust him in that Uh, I don't know how that's going to play out for each person who feels same-sex attraction. I can't guess how their lives uh, will be better if they don't give into that and they go with God's plan. But I trust that it will be better because I trust God's plan. And I I think that's what it comes down to is is, um, trust in God that his plan for humanity is, is the best because he's created us.
0: After Jesus' resurrection, is he able to hold water in his hands? The question is, okay, so Jesus has been crucified and he has holes in his hands now, right? (laughs) So, you know, are those holes still there? Are they still there? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, is another way of an- of understanding the question, and um, we do know that uh, when Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to his disciples that same evening, and then the following week, he invited them to put their hands in the in his side and to touch the the holes in his hands. Right. Um, right. There's plenty of. Uh, I'm thinking that that's also mentioned in Revelation, but it's not coming to mind directly. Certainly, Christian imagery and enmity oh, right. yeah, the Lamb that was slain through the ages mm-hmm. talks about yeah, the Lamb that was slain, his wounds, and by his wounds that were healed. Mm-hmm. And um, so, can he hold water in his hands? I think Jesus can do anything he wants to, but uh, his <laughs> wounds are still there. He's somehow recognizable, but not recognizable. It's another interesting thing about the resurrected Jesus is that it seems like sometimes. Folks don't recognize him right away, so somehow he's also different, but he still carries that humanity and those wounds with him as well, it seems.
2: Don't uh, skeletons of crucifixion victims suggest that they were uh, the the nails were driven into their wrists? That is true. Anyway, so uh, so the hands would still be intact. That's true. (laughs) <laughs> yep.
0: That's one we'll have to we'll uh encourage everyone to have faith in Christ and go to heaven so that you can find out for
2: yourself. There you go. <laughs> Perfect.
1: Why didn't Mary and Joseph stay at Joseph's parents' house when they went to Bethlehem?
0: Okay, so uh, uh, why didn't they stay at Joseph's parents' house? I believe this is in reference to, uh, at the time of Jesus' birth. Uh, Oh, right. We could understand it different ways than that. uh, Oh, that makes sense. So, yeah, I think this is interesting when when, uh, we don't know where Joseph's parents lived exactly, all right? So Joseph, at the time that he's engaged to Mary, lives in Nazareth, but this decree comes out from Caesar Augustus that everybody needs to go and get counted for a census, and you're supposed to go to your ancestral home to do that. So right. he's got to go down to Bethlehem to do that. Like if his parents lived in Bethlehem, and maybe they did, maybe they did, we don't know. The The imagery that I think in Western Christianity we often have now is this, this stable separate from, well, some people think it's like in the back part of a hotel, the innkeeper, <laughs> you know, sends sends him to a—there's no actual innkeeper in the Luke story. Right, uh, right. So— There's no room in the inn. There's no room in the inn, or there's no guest room. And so—and linguistically speaking, Luke, who writes the Christmas story that we're all familiar with where there is no room for them in the inn, that uh, he was born in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn, in the story of the Good Samaritan, he talks about an inn there where Jesus' our character— the good Samaritan puts the injured guy in an inn, and there's a certain word he uses there for that, an actual hotel-like place, right? The word that's used in Luke 2 is not that same word, which Luke had available to use. Right. The word that he has there is a guest room, like a guest room where Peter's, uh, where the disciples stay when Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law later on in Luke. It's that kind of thing. Mm. And so... The idea is that there is, he's staying with, they're staying with relatives and there are guest rooms in this house, but there's so many people in town that those guest rooms are also full. So they have to go on the main layer. There's an enclosed place where animals are kept also in the house, but, in a, you know, in their own area, but of the house. And in that main area where the animals are kept, that's where they have to be at and they have to use a manger for a bed okay. that are in the animal stable area, but it's part of the house. Okay. The way that hmm. houses are built back then. So right. that's right. that's possibly what happened. So it is possible they were with Joseph's parents. And that does actually then make it make sense, although you gotta understand that you're switching to a different gospel author, but in Matthew's gospel, when the the Magi show up, they come to a house. Right. And it's believed well it's still in Bethlehem mm-hmm. and it could be up to two years after Jesus was born. But they're in a house, maybe at the same house that they've been at the whole time with family. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's unknown, but it does at least it fits a little better
2: that way. So well, I just assume that Joseph was a pretty, uh, you know, if he's chosen to be the the uh, stepfather of of the son of God, I assume he's probably a pretty resourceful guy, right? And uh, so he's going to find good lodgings for them to to be in. Uh, can can I just can I just air a little little pet peeve, little sure. little grievance here? I hear sometimes uh, devotional books or, or preachers talking about Jesus being laid in a dirty manger, and and uh, you know I think that kind of does a disservice to Joseph and Mary. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I think, and they can we can assume that they cleaned the manger.
0: I would think so. Um, yeah.
2: That they put fresh hay in there. If if he did lay on a bed of hay, that they did everything that they could to uh, you know to give their baby the best the best that po- they possibly could, like any. Any new parents would do who love their their newborn baby. Absolutely.
0: That's that's a good point. I do think and I sometimes joke about this. If you if you listen to LBT's Christmas podcast, I made a little reference to this, that at the same time, Jesus was born in an era of history, (laughs) That's not very clean, you know, <laughs> and not very nice. And so, yeah, you know, sure. you kind of think, you know, the angel saying, i sure you want to send him at this time?" <laughs> but, anyways, I think you're right, though. You know, these parents um, know that this is a this kid is like all kids. First of all, is special, but then they they have some sense that
2: this is the the son of God right. in, yeah. in
0: some way that they probably don't get. And I'm sure that they do sure. take
2: really good care of him. Yeah. <laughs> An area that's not very clean. So I can imagine them going, it's just dirt. Right, right. (laughs) Dirt was around all over the place. Yep, that is true.
0: If we know that God
1: will forgive us, why do we need to worry about not sinning? Can't God just forgive
2: us later? You know, when I think about that, uh, I I think about my relationship with my wife Mm -hmm. You know, my wife has is, is committed to to stay married to me in, in all situations. And right. so that uh, if I take that marriage vow the wrong way, I can say, well, I can do pretty much anything that I want. And, uh, you know, she has vowed to be faithful to me, and, and so I'm going to hold her to that. Well, that that's kind of missing the point of what a marriage relationship is supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. And so if somebody would approach their faith in God in that way, it would show kind of a failure to grasp God's character and and our proper relationship with him. So it kind of makes God seem like a cosmic rule maker and uh, who's, who's getting in the way of my fun instead of God who wants me to have life and have it abundantly. And ultimately that means eternal life, but he also wants me to have an abundant life, not in terms of lots of money or anything, but in terms of living out my purpose most fully on this earth. So instead of thinking, why should I worry about sinning? God's just going to forgive me. The thinking of someone who knows and loves God and really knows who God is should be, uh, God loves me and that's why uh, he wants me to stay away from sin because it's going to hurt me in more ways than I know. And so I want to stay away from sin too. Uh, A, because I love God and I want to do what he wants me to do. And B, because I know it's bad for me. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes um,
0: I've talked about this before as not just Christianity, but religions in general, the the impulse for human beings to find loopholes, to see basically like how close can I get to something thats that I'm not supposed to do right. <laughs> and still be okay. Hmm. And that whole loophole mindset is, it really just is not really compatible with how how scripture talks about our relationship with God. So if we're yeah. asking ourselves, um, you know, what's a way I can do what I want to do and still be okay? A better question is, uh, because of the, the the deep, compassionate love that God has poured out abundantly upon me, overflowing in my life, what does love require of me? You know, what is what does it look like to respond to that love, both mm-hmm. towards God, but really towards my neighbor, because that's that's how I show my love yeah. for God in First John chapter 3. It talks about uh, yeah. how we love our neighbor shows how we love God. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in a sense, then, if that's really at the core and center of our understanding about uh, our relationship with God, then these kind of loophole questions really don't have a, a place.
2: Right. And don't you think there gets to be a certain point where um, if a person starts to take God's forgiveness for granted in that way, they get to kind of a dangerous place in their faith?
0: yes i think i think that's true um there's you know passages in exodus passages in romans where that talks about a hardening of heart in a Mm -hmm. sense that that and and it's hard to it's not really explained like here's how you understand this to happen it doesn't do that in the bible it just describes that it eventually happens the the continual rejection of the word of god in a sense uh eventually leads to a place where your heart becomes hardened and you can't you can't respond to the word of god Mm -hmm. anymore and so I would like to think, yeah, that that sin is that thing. I had a pastor when I was younger who talked about sin, you know, just think of it as sitting on the table, it looks like a glass of water, but it's a glass of poison, and God would be like, just don't touch it, like, it doesn't, it looks harmless, but we just, in ways that we can't even see, right. will be deeply harmed by it, mm-hmm. and uh, so there's lots of different ways to look at it, but sure, yeah, I think uh, ultimately that constant taking it for granted, which is, is essentially a rejection of God's word, and, and God's word not right. just as laws,
2: but God's will for us because he knows what's best for us, yep. it can put us in a, in a bad place. God's word and the, the natural law of God written on our hearts as well. Yeah.
1: How can a loving God send people to hell?
0: Yeah, this one is, uh, again, a question that— it's troubling, really, and there are several ways to go about answering it, and like this one, for example, could sound flippant, and I don't mean it, but I uh, mean it to be flippant, I guess, but uh, in one way, God sends no one to hell. We are we are on our way there apart from God, because right. that's how we are by nature. We are separated from God, yeah. and so he's not sending us to hell. We are just on our way, and he's, he's uh, making a way to reconcile us to himself,
2: and I... Mm-hmm. Um, not Isn't kidding. it uh, John three seventeen that says that we stand condemned already? Right. Yeah. You know, so God condemns no one. We are we are in a state of condemnation because of our sinfulness. Yeah. Right. Yeah. God did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. To save the world. Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. But any other thoughts? I mean, this is this is a question that that's almost a decade ago now was a big question in in American
2: Christianity. Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, I always thought it was interesting how C.S. Lewis went about it. Maybe I don't remember where I read it. It might have been mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis kind of looked at it as people really create their own hell by them for themselves by their rebellion and disobedience in, against God. And God finally and very reluctantly, and this is a quote from C.S. Lewis, seconds their motion mm-hmm. and uh, says, not in spite but in sorrow, have it your way. So hell is what people have done for themselves by refusing the presence of God in their lives, is, um, is the way C.S. Lewis looked at it. I thought that was kind of interesting. And I also like to think of it in terms of, of um, just spiritual reality, once again, in comparing holy God to sinful people. You know, if I stare at the sun, I'm gonna go blind. It's not because the sun is mean because my eyes and the sun's intense light can't, (laughs) they can't meet uh, in that way. Or if I touch a high voltage electrical wire, uh, I'm going to be electrocuted not because the wire is mean or has anything against me. It's just the way it is. And so people who are still in their sins and have not had their sins forgiven by Christ cannot be with God who is perfectly holy. Um, They must be away from him for eternity. and, And that's just the way it is. That's spiritual
0: reality yeah and i think it's also important to mention that for the for the christian as for god himself and of course god is able to perfectly do this and and genuinely with deep compassion desires that no one would go to hell but i think even for the follower of christ this is not anything that we have any joy in that anyone would go to hell, and that, you know, if right. there would be, if God would at some point reveal that there is some way that nobody has to go to hell, we would all rejoice in that, right? <laughs> oh, so definitely. There's no, yeah. um, there's no real room or place that, for us to to desire that for anybody, but as far as we can tell, and, and there's folks who have talked about that Scripture really doesn't get into many details about how if you really look at the whole testimony of Scripture and what Jesus talked about and everything, there's not a lot there. But the fact of the matter is there seems to be some eternal judgment and separation mm-hmm. for anyone who rejects God finally, and that is a fact that we all lament and and that I think are motivated to to share God's love and to share the message of the gospel right. so that to the extent that God desires to work through that, that people won't. But mm-hmm. uh, ultimately, I think the, the the gospel is less about how to stay out of hell and then it, it is about how to have a relationship with the Creator of the universe, who right. loves you deeply and desires nothing more that you would be in His presence for eternity. And mm-hmm. Even uh, Francis Pieper, for the Lutherans out there who really are <laughs> deep into stuff, is you know kind of a crusty old German theologian. He says the the best thing we can know about hell is just uh, you know not to study it in deep, but just know that there's a way you never have to know anything about it, and that's by your faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, so.
2: yeah well put. Good job, Peeper.
0: <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, thanks to all the students from St. Paul Lutheran High School who gave us questions and uh, put us through the ringer. To to think, we hope that you've been blessed by uh, this time. And uh,
2: Pastor Lang, I want to thank you for also being with us and sharing your thoughts. Yeah, that was fun. I enjoy thinking about questions like that, and and uh, of course, what I teach, apologetics, is all about answering questions about the faith. So, um, so this is. Right at my I appreciated the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you. Yep. The Christian faith gives us the
0: always uh, God's always looking and, and open to to questions and yeah, to hear those things, to hear the concerns of our hearts and at a certain point maybe to say, Hey, that's just too much for you to know. But right. so there's a lot <laughs> there's a lot between not having any questions answered and when you reach that point. So yeah. yeah. Well, thanks for being with us today.
1: So they really didn't hold back, did they? <laughs> they they had some really intense questions, some that were a little bit more uh, fun, you know, like that idea of, were Adam and Eve vegetarians before the fall? You know, that that can be a little bit fun, but you can also really tackle that and what does that mean? But I think that it really just shows how important it is to be able to answer questions right. and and to be real. And to not assume that we all have uh the answers perfectly laid out, even if we're, you know, new to the church or if we're longtime members, we're we're called to build a bridge and to, to be able to engage in conversation.
0: Yeah, and as I've said many times before, I think Lutheran Bible Translators being located on this high school campus just enriches us a little bit more because it gives us access to students, to young folks from all over the world who are also wrestling with matters of faith that are being presented to them in school. And several of them, of course, live here on campus, so they're kind of doing life and figuring out things, and that is always going to prompt you to ask more questions. And and really, asking questions and clarifying what the Bible is saying is an integral part of Bible translation ministry as well. As the Scripture is translated, even in the process of translating it, people are asking questions about how is this going to be understood, how will these words come across, and what will people already have in their minds? Does that match up with what intended meaning was? And so it just really sharpens us to be always looking at Scripture from the perspective of asking questions. We want to thank the students who submitted questions again and our assistants who recorded them as well, and of course, Pastor Lang for joining us on this special episode. St. Paul Lutheran High School is our valued partner. They've been here in Concordia, Missouri, since 1883, the last of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's residential high schools serving to form young men and women for service to Christ. You can find out more about St. Paul Lutheran High School at their website, splhs.org. That's splhs.org. Thank you for listening to the Essentially Translatable podcast brought to you by Lutheran Bible Translators. You can find past episodes of the podcast at lbt.org slash podcast or subscribe on Audible, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get podcast content. Follow Lutheran Bible Translators social media channels on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or go to lbt.org to find out how you can get involved in the Bible translation movement and put God's word in their hands. This episode of Essentially Translatable was produced and edited by Andrew Olson. Our executive producer is Emily Wilson. Podcast artwork was designed by Caleb Rotewald. Music written and performed by Rob Veit. I'm Rich Radowski. So long for now.